the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is not with one outstanding educator, but with two, Jesse McLean and Travis McNaughton. Jesse currently works with Alberta Education in research on a secondment. He's been a teacher and administrator at multiple schools and at multiple levels. Travis is currently principal at three different schools, Four Screen Elementary School, Connections for Learning, and Bright Bank Academy, all with Parkland School Division in Alberta, Canada. He has experience at all levels of school and with multiple different delivery methods. In this podcast, I feel it's important to be speaking with people who work in many different venues that affect education, and both Travis and Jesse represent administrators who have led change initiatives with innovative programs in schools. I think their perspective and the lessons they've learned along the way will help you lead change in your school. If you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter, at IntersectionEd. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Jesse McLean and Travis McNaughton. All right, I'm here with... uh... Jesse McLean and Travis McNaughton. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming in today. How are how are you doing on this great Thanksgiving evening? Very good. Doing awesome. Full of turkey. Full good of turkey. to go. That's great. Now, I should mention we're on Canadian Thanksgiving, so that's uh, a, a little bit earlier than uh, some of our uh, American compatriots. But uh, let's get right into it. First question that I have is, uh, what is an idea that you think, if introduced or expanded in schools, will lead to better learning. And Jesse, why don't we start with you? Uh, I think I'm probably going to steal a bit of Travis's thunder because we're kind of on the same page, I think, here. But uh, personalized learning uh, in a big way, just breaking free from the ideas of timelines and grades. Uh, Travis and I have done a lot of work together, and, and we always seem to come back to this idea of you know empowering students to to drive their learning and, and to create their learning and, and that, you know, breaks them out of that bubble. So if we could do that more, we just have to, we have to get to a place where people are comfortable with that teachers, administrators, parents, the whole gambit. But I think if we saw more of that, it would, it would definitely have a positive impact on education for sure. Okay. Jesse, before we leave you, I just want to follow up on that. You know, a lot of people are not really comfortable with this whole idea. If we're going to let go of the curriculum, we're going to lower grades and it sounds to me like that's that's to a certain point what you're advocating for. Can you can you explain what that would look like? So if you have a, a, no curriculum, if you are personalizing the learning 100%, if you have very little grades, tell me what that looks like, and and maybe allay the fears of the of the parent that says, well, how do I know the learning is actually going on? Well, I. I think that's something that's a gross generalization about personalized learning is that we have to have no grades and break free from curriculum. I think that 
there is plenty of ways that we can address the curriculum, that we can assess students for learning, have them involved in their assessment in a personalized way. And so I think it's more about how we address curriculum and how we address assessment in a way that fits the students best. And so, you know, Travis and I have both been inspired by David Truss and the Inquiry Hub in Coquitlam, BC. And that's a school that really empowers students to find their own way to to address the curriculum, to address what's needed in their learning, but also find projects and and passions that they can pursue that will help them learn and and, and uh, continue to grow while doing all of the things that they would be required to in, in, in that case, the BC education system, but here in Alberta or wherever we're at, I think you can do both. It's obviously difficult, but that like, it's a, it's a fun challenge to address because when you do it right, or when you have those moments where it feels like you're doing it right, you feel like you're doing all the things that you have to do, but getting to enjoy all the things of really empowered, passionate learning. Before I leave you, can you give me an example? So have you seen a really great example that would that would let people know really what you're talking about? Um, uh, maybe a school or maybe a personal experience that you've had where where this actually came to life and you felt like, yeah, that, that hit it. Mm. That hit both curriculum as well as personalized learning. And it all came together and it was easy and it was amazing. Well, and so... If anyone doesn't know of, about David Truss and the Inquiry Hub in Coquitlam, I, I recommend looking them up and and connecting with them. Um, in the school, they students kind of map out how they're going to uh, address their curriculum and how they're going to work through the year. And so there was three girls that worked there in the beginning in grade nine. One of the major projects they did was to build a community garden. And what they did with their teachers is sat down and worked out all the different ways that building a community garden could address different curricular outcomes. So they wrote grant letters, they planned out budgets, they they built the uh, the garden boxes. They had to do a lot of work. And in the end, the number of curricular outcomes they hit were, were numerous, but the benefit was this community garden that existed in, in at their school. And so they had a big celebration and, and the food that was harvested from the garden was part of it. You can imagine the power in that experience for those three girls. They, they were there for various reasons in a school that had this unique setting and this unique plan for education. But it was a very powerful experience for those kids. And obviously, it set the tone for their school to find ways to do this. So kids can find this, this pa- plan for like a passionate way, like a, an inspired way to address their, their schooling. At the same time, they're going to be excited about what's going to come out the other end, whereas we oftentimes the learning experiences that we're designing don't often have that payoff. And it was amazing to see that. And and David talks about it and there's lots of blog posts about it. And it's just an excellent example of the two being married together, curriculum and personalized learning. That sounds great. Well, we're going to let you off the hot seat for a little bit and pass it over to Travis. Same question. Idea that if introduced or expanded in schools would lead to better learning. What do you think? Uh, I, I actually, um, just before I answer that with a different direction, I just want to build off of sort of what Jesse was saying a little bit, um, just around the whole idea of personalized learning. And I think it's something that's like foundationally or fundamentally, um, going back to the roots of asking ourselves, what is the purpose of education? Like, what are we, what are we serving? What are we trying to accomplish for every single student and a lot of what is set up within our educational system right now is still founded coming out of the industrial era 
the factory model where it's the same curriculum for the same kid or for all the kids and they have to show their learning and uh, pretty close to the same way in order to achieve graduation. And uh, I mean, there's not much of an argument out there. Like we all see that the world's changed. And uh, if our purpose is really to prepare students for their next step after they leave high school, whatever that may be, I don't see how we can do anything but take a personalized approach because the opportunities that lay before um, all of our students are changing. Even now, they're still changing. We don't even necessarily know what opportunities they may have in the next 10 or 20 years. And uh, certainly the opportunities that many of our students are entering in today didn't exist, um, you know, 10, 10 years ago. And so uh, how we explore taking a personalized approach, making sure that students are engaged and worthwhile, meaningful work for them, I think is a, is a huge, should be a huge focus of, um, of what we're doing as educators uh, today, for sure. That sounds well, thanks for expanding. I think that that good that is a good summary. And, and Jesse said that he might have uh, stole your thunder. So you, you said you might have a different yeah. answer. What what would you say? Idea introduced or expanded? How do well, we get to better learning? I think I think I'm gonna just put a little twist on this in terms of uh, in terms of leadership, uh, taking a leadership angle to how we empower uh, students and teachers to optimize learning. And, uh, and it sort of fits in some ways hand in hand with what we've been talking about here with personalized learning. But, um, I think the complexities that educators are dealing with in empowering student learning today, uh, has increased over the last number of years. And so, uh, there's an interesting paper, uh, written or a theory called complexity, complexity leadership theory. And uh, basically the whole notion of that, that the more complex the problem is that we're facing, um, the more complex the solution needs to be. Complex problems require complex solutions. And uh, so as we look at the way education is set up and we have some, um, you know, traditional structures and uh, ways that we organize ourselves within, uh, within education, I think the more as leaders that we can flatten the organization to empower every person's voice uh, to be able to contribute uh, to the best of their ability, to be able to generate ideas, to think innovatively and creatively in order to allow the best solutions to emerge, to address the complex problems, uh, the better that would be. So I think even part of that is, uh, you know, beginning to look at should education be trying to address these complex issues in isolation? How do we tap into, uh, you know, parents' voice? How do we tap into other organizations' voice, teachers' voice more, as opposed to, um, you know, hierarchical structures just making the decisions? The, the people that are closest to the challenges that we're facing, what can we do as leaders to empower those people to come up with, uh, you know, come help contribute to the solutions that might be our way forward to addressing some of these issues? And just like I asked uh, Jesse to come up with an example, do you have any ideas or any thoughts around ways that we can flatten that system, ways that we can get meaningful feedback from parents, from students, from teachers to address these complex problems that they're facing? Well, I think, I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of the colleagues I work with, I think are trying to do that, but I think, um, uh, 
as we try to create the conditions to optimize collaboration and learning networks and uh, spend time in space using different strategies uh, collectively, like, uh, you know, design thinking would be an example about how uh, we can um, engage in a process with uh, multiple stakeholders to try to address a problem and come up with different solutions and to get in that creative thinking space to begin to address that. I think that's an example of how we would try to do that. Um, I know in some schools, uh, even uh, creating something as simple as moving from, uh, you know, a traditional prep time model to a collaborative time model where you have people working together, engaging over problems of practice is a simple example just within education of how we could do that. But um, I think there's lots of endless possibilities if we continue to try to create more and more spaces like that to uh, address the challenges that we're facing. Sounds good. I'm going to uh, direct this one at Jesse again. You get to go first. Is there something about learning or education that you believe is true that most people would disagree with you on? So thinking about this topic, I've, I've heard uh, you know a few of your episodes. I love the answers, and, and this question is really challenging. The one that I think was, I thought, what's something that I used to think and would disagree with myself 10 years ago. And I used to be a very big advocate for engagement, mm. thinking that was, it was the key to powerful education. And uh, now I kind of feel like I've moved past that. Into, so I would put it out there that engagement isn't enough and it has to be kind of our new mantra and that we have to get past engagement and get into a more, meaningful goal for our learning i'll give you an example yeah so we used to do uh something called innovation week when i was uh at graystone working with carolyn cameron who's been on your podcast before and in the beginning innovation week was an easy sell give kids a week to do whatever they wanted to do whatever they wanted to learn about they could pursue it they had some planning that they had to do way to make sure that there was some some rigor to it. It's a Josh Stumpenhorse's idea. It's something I've never had an original idea in my head. So <laughs> it's something we use from Josh. And so uh, in the beginning, it was easy. You just get them going and they were excited. But in the end, we noticed that we had a lot of engagement and not as much when it came to that academic challenge. And the real meaningful projects were the ones where the kids were engaged and they cared, but it was hard enough, challenging enough that they got stuck and, and resilience was built in this natural setting where they weren't going to give up on the project. And so we had to change what we did with innovation week. And so that it got beyond just the, you know, the party time fun of, of giving kids a week to do whatever they wanted, learn whatever they wanted and get to a place where it had to be meaningful. It had to be challenging. It had to be more than just, that freedom. And so it, I mean, it paid off, but it took multiple times to get there in the beginning, seeing the excitement and seeing all the engagement and kids coming to school, like the last week before Christmas, our attendance being super high because kids wanted to be a part of it made you think we were on the right track, but we were missing something and we needed to get there and, and turning up the, the expectations academically, finding ways to challenge kids to connect with something more than just the, the thing they were excited about helped us get there for sure. I'm interested to know how you how you realized how you came to the realization that engagement wasn't enough. Maybe particularly in that project, what it was it that you saw that made you want to rethink 
and and question whether just being really excited about learning was enough. Well, did you have any data? Did was it was it more anecdotal? Um, what were the things that you were saying that said no? This this is actually not rigorous, academically challenging enough. And so it's a week long, uh, the majority of the day spent in projects. And so lucky enough at the time being an administrator, I got to move around the building and, and assist different kids and see what they were doing. And Carolyn as principal was doing the same thing. And it wasn't that there was no, um, rigorous projects, challenging projects. There was some, and we saw this huge gap in the benefit for those students who had found topics and projects that were challenging and those that just were stuck in the engagement zone and not really challenging themselves. So, you know, when you give kids the choice, there's going to be a lot of things like skateboarding and scooters and video games and comic books. And we would walk around and see all these kids really excited about their project. But in the end, they hadn't challenged themselves or turned out a product that really spoke to this uh, academic learning. And so we, looked at the projects that were successful that did challenge themselves. And uh, the example that we used a lot in the beginning, we had three really bright students build a hovercraft. They looked at YouTube and looked at all these different projects that they saw and they wanted to recreate what they had seen and, and make improvements. And by the time they got to halfway through the week, they realized that everything they had planned wasn't going to work. They were going to use two lawnmower engines, one to lift and one to, you know, to propel and they were too heavy. And that moment they could have easily just given up. It's the week before Christmas. They could have mailed it in and said, we can't do it. And, and I've seen that happen, but they did everything they could to find a way through it. And we had to find that for other students and help them find projects where they would get stuck and be willing to work through that. And so we are all advocates for building resiliency, but can we find a meaningful way to build resiliency in students? It has to be something they care about so much that they will get do whatever they have to do to get over the hump. And we saw that. And so we had to find ways to recreate that and help kids get there. Some could do it on their own, of course, but others needed some assistance. And so we worked with our teachers. We had amazing teachers taking the time to help kids shape their projects and find that challenge. And, and it got better. So in the beginning, the excitement, it was easy to be fired up about engaged students, but we, we saw, we wanted more. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but that kind of said to me, we have to sometimes be doing more than just, chasing engagement that's a good answer thanks so much Traff, same same question is there something out there um about learning or or education that you believe is true that you, you get pushed back from or from other people or that you think that most people would disagree with you on i don't i don't know about most people um you'd be <laughs> amazed how much i hear that <laughs> uh i'm gonna i'm gonna come back to this personalization thing and, uh, I think, I think like when I, t when I have conversations with colleagues about this, a lot of times people are like, uh, yeah, that makes sense. That's good, whatever. But then when it comes to actually talking about the implications of what it might mean, I feel like it might, uh, you know, uh, cause some people to question what I'm saying or whatever. What, what do you mean? People are <laughs> uncomfortable with change? Uh, yeah, exactly. How? You know, things that uh, we take for granted within our system. This is just the way that we've, we don't even question it because it's just the way it's, the way it's been. And so just this whole personalization thing, I think there's a ton of implications in that, but I, I just want to tell a story. I had a conversation with two high school kids 
um, a couple years ago. And uh, one um, wanted to be a dentist, knew he wanted to be a dentist since he was in like grade eight, um, just knew exactly what his course was. Bright kid, had like school down to a fine art. Um, his goal was, you know, high 90% because he wanted to be a dentist. He had, he knew where he wanted to go to school after graduating the whole nine yards. And, um, and then another student I talked to who, uh, he, he was like, I just want to pass. <laughs> He's like, I'm just counting the days. 50% is my goal. And, uh, he, I just want to graduate and, uh, and then get on with doing whatever I'm going to do. And the interesting thing is I talked with both these kids separately. This is over a course of a few months. I had these two interactions is their story about their high school experience was eerily similar. Hmm. They had completely different goals. So one was the high 90, 98% or whatever, top of his class, the other one was just 50% or higher. He was happy uh, to graduate. And they both just talked about how uh, most of what they were doing, they saw no relevance to their future. Uh, most of what they were doing was about just giving back to the teacher whatever it is they thought that the teacher wanted to see in order for them to get the goal that they wanted to get. And so the 50% kid did what he figured the teacher wanted to see for 50% and the 98% kid did what he figured he needed to do for the 98%. And uh, it just made me realize that, um, you know, even for kids that are doing well in school and navigating school and going on to graduate, and um, we're missing a huge opportunity uh, for providing some incredible learning experiences that could help them for their future um, better than what we're currently doing for sure. You're not off the hot seat yet. Uh, I'm going to give you the first hack of the next question. And that's uh, when you think of the term master teacher, who or what comes to mind and why? First thing I'd say is knowing the student. Um, the master teacher knows the student, knows what their strengths are, uh, knows what their areas of growth are, knows what their interests are, know what they're passionate about, um, a master t uh, and is able to create the learning opportunities that empowers that student uh, to do something that matters to them, that uh, is able to give them feedback along the way and ask the right questions at the right time that's going to take them a lot deeper. I think the master teacher is a lot more interested in uh, creating deep learning opportunities as opposed to, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, so to speak. Jesse, you're up. Master teacher, who or what comes to mind? I think uh, professionals who are constantly evolving. And so I don't think it's tied to how long you've been in the profession, but you see it in teachers that you, you talk to and then you revisit over time and they've completely reinvented themselves. And it's not just that they change because they have to, but they like thirst for change. And so we can be successful doing the same thing over and over again. And those people that are just not comfortable doing the same thing. Like I love when I hear a teacher say, well, I've been teaching this for a while, so I want to try something new or I've never taught that grade level. And I'm kind of looking for a challenge because we could just do the same thing. Like it, we can. And 
there are there are people who do and I love seeing the people who are just constantly looking for that new challenge and a change. And I, so I think those people inspire me because I don't know if I'm always as brave as they are to challenge myself that way. And so when I think of master teacher, I, I don't think of an age. I don't think of how long they've been out of school. I think of that person who's just constantly looking for something new and different to bring to their students. So that would be my answer. We're going to kick it back to Travis. Do you have a favorite failure or a favorite success that's helped you learn an important lesson in your in your career or in your life? And, and what I mean by that is a favorite failure. Yeah, probably at the moment it, it seemed either really great or if it's a favorite success or sorry, a favorite failure didn't feel very good or a, a favorite success it didn't it felt amazing. But what it did is it informed you forward. It really changed how you thought about things or how you worked out things or or or, or what you did. You felt it was a big improvement. I don't know if I can isolate one failure, but I will say I think back to some of the things that I did when I was teaching early in my career, and it's like complete opposition to what I would believe now for sure. <laughs> Early in my career, it was about covering the curriculum. It was making sure I got through every objective. It was more about management and organizing lessons than it was empowering individual students. And uh, so through working with different people, through different experiences that I've had, um, you know, uh, out of that, it's... um, you know, for sure brought me to a place where, uh, I would never try to duplicate that kind of thing for kids again. And so it, it's not like an isolated incident, but, uh, but, uh, for sure, uh, you know, and reflecting back on that, that's really informed how I do things differently now, for sure. I'm interested to know whether you think that if someone was to tell you the same things that you're, you're espousing right now, would you have taken that lesson and, and, and kind of thought about it? Or do you think that you, you needed to live that experience in order to know it and in order to be, um, to have the perspectives that you have now? Um, that's a good question. I think that it's perhaps could be a little bit of both, but I actually think it at the core of it, it's was my belief, my fundamental belief system about what it meant to be a teacher. And that's changed from when I've started. And so when I started, I think my belief system was formed from my own experience as a student. And and so a lot of what I thought I was going to bring to the profession was a lot of what I had experienced in the past. And now the more I've learned, the more I've collaborated with some amazing people, and the more I look to see what's happening in our world and in other industries even – um, the more I realized that, uh, you know, my belief system about how uh, the education system should serve our students has changed a lot. So. Jesse, same question. Do you have a favorite success or a, a favorite failure that's informed your practice? I do, and I, I will get to I just want to expand a little bit on what Travis said. Um, I think a lot of it, like when we think about when we talk to new teachers in our building, like, We've been administrators. You guys are still administrators. If you really asked a new teacher, how will you know your year went well? I bet you'd get a lot of the answers that you're talking about. Like, 
I won't send a lot of kids to the office. Like I'll cover all the outcomes. And if you dug down really deep, they might say, I might have some troubles, but I'll be able to handle them or I'll know who to look to for support. Whereas now, if you asked yourself, if you were teaching, how would you know if you had a good year? There'd be answers if you really dug deep down to like, I'd be uncomfortable. I'd be in moments where I was challenged. I would be in the, in the fray with my students battling through and trying to figure things out. And so I think by having that conversation with new teachers, we can help them understand that it's, I mean, we all want to be good at our job, but it's okay to, to make mistakes. It's okay to challenge yourself and it's okay to feel uncomfortable because how often in your first couple of years were you just trying to put on a brave face when the principal walked by, right? So I think that's like a really valuable conversation to have with new teachers to try to get them to that place. Like, and you say to get past that growth of just being compliant and being the good soldier, my favorite failure, I don't think I was a failure as an assistant principal. I think I did a pretty good job, but Getting coming to the realization that administration wasn't for me hmm. was a really tough thing because everyone tells you that's the next progression. And mm-hmm. I think I was a fairly good teacher. I think I was a fairly, fairly good colleague and, and collaborator. And so it became a natural thing to consider administration. And twice I went into administration and twice I left administration because I felt like it wasn't the right career path for me. And it was pretty challenging, but coming to the end of it and being where I'm at now, I'm comfortable saying, I, I don't think administration is for me and that's okay. It wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. It was definitely something that was tough to take and had many tough conversations, but I think I can look back now and go, that was a good thing. And it helped me in my career. And I know going forward that I can set different goals and, and look for different ways to, for, to have a rewarding career. So that'd be mine. Now you can share as much as you'd like, as much as you're comfortable with, but what were the aspects of being an administrator at a school that you felt didn't jive with, with, with what you were about? I would say this, that every, every principal I worked with was excellent. Like they were fantastic. And I think you can't be a very successful AP without a a strong relationship with your principal. And I was lucky I did every time. So it wasn't anything to do with that. It was the proximity from the students and the learning that I felt like I got to work with kids and I had great interactions with students. Sometimes they needed my help because they were struggling, but being that far from the learning and, and, and not getting into classrooms as much. And I want to be fair. There's lots of things that go into running a school, but a lot of stuff that didn't feel connected to learning. And, and so it just came, I came to realization. It's just, it's not for me. Not right now. I mean, things change, but of course, right now I, I wanted to be closer to the learning for sure. And so I went back to teaching and I felt closer to the learning, obviously. <laughs> well, that's a success. That, that, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? A, a favorite failure that leads to an important lesson that makes you feel better or that makes you a better person or that makes you a better teacher. And that sounds like the essence of it, even though someone might look at that as a failure, but it's not, it's completely a success. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. There's definitely people that don't understand. Yeah. And, and, and I'm always willing to talk about it, but yeah, it was definitely something that was hard to get to. But once I got there, I felt very, (laughs) really good about it. Let's get into some shorter answers. And I'm not going to let you off the hot seat. I'm going to I'm going to let you go first, uh, which which I think is an advantage. But uh, we'll see. Uh, do you have a favorite app, website, or, or another media source that that you really like, or that 
you felt you feel informs your practice or even that you just feel informs your worldview or your perspective. It's probably cheating, but like Twitter for me is the go-to and I feel like Twitter has different, you know, it, Twitter evolves with you as you need it. So it's all about, you know, what are you jumping into? So when I first got into Twitter as an educator, lots of great ideas for your classroom and lots of great, you know, things to bring to kids and then when I went into doing my master's, lots of great research you could connect with. And now it's evolved into different conversations about education, educational change. And so I think it's, you know, it's, you can dip your toe into whatever conversation you want to. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a cop out, but Twitter is definitely my, my go-to resource for sure. Favorite hashtag at the moment. Oh, well, I'm also a basketball coach. Ah. So a lot of basketball <laughs> hashtags too. Yeah. Trav, um, Favorite app, website, other media? Well, at the moment, I got to go with the MLB app because it is the postseason right now. <laughs> so that's True. a totally personal thing. But uh, on the in a website that I like, obviously the social media thing, Jesse already sold that, but uh, Leader, <laughs> Leader Cast Now is mm-hmm. actually pretty cool. And it's like, it's basically this leadership website and it's got like videos three to five minute long. And it's all about just a variety of leadership principles. The thing I like about it is it's not education focused. And I think that, um, yeah, I just appreciate the leadership lessons that can be learned from industry elsewhere, everywhere from athletes to doctors to business people and so on. I think there's a lot that as a leader in the education system that I can take and apply that to our setting that, uh, yeah, helps me be a better leader, hopefully. All right, let's move into uh, a book or or even let's expand that to an article because I know that you're uh, currently finishing off a master's. Yeah. Uh, book or article that you recommend or that you um, maybe refer to a lot? Well, a uh, book, I'd go with uh, Creativity Inc. Hmm. Uh, similar reasons that I just shared for that. It was, it's an easy read, but I think a lot of uh, really good leadership principles sort of brought to life in a entertaining way um so yeah i'd recommend that book and uh article i'd probably have to go back to the uh complexity leadership theory article yeah. is there um, an author although that you although have? uh although my classmates <laughs> all my classmates they uh they make fun of me because they don't think it's very good uh <laughs> but uh no, I think there's a there's a lot in there that's worth taking away for sure. So, is there an author on that complexity theory, or, uh, or maybe just search it up at Google and uh, go for there? Yeah, there is an author, but yeah. uh, it would require someone with a better memory than I. Sounds to great. Be able to give you that. Why so. don't we put it in the show notes? That'll yeah, uh, that'll work. Right. Uh, Jesse, book, article, uh, something that you refer to quite a lot uh, for the article. I think like the best article, if you want to, you know, just get your feet wet with educational research is a Resnick's article, everything I needed to learn. I learned in kindergarten. <laughs> it's a fantastic read. And I think it challenges what, you know, how you think about uh, education book. It's always my go-to. I give it away as a gift to anyone who doesn't have it is mindset by Dweck. I think that, uh, when I read it, I read it as a parent, as a, as a son, as a husband, as a coach and it impacted so many different, you know, arenas of my life and how I interact with people. And so I keep going back to it. 
I got it, you know, dog-eared and highlighted in different places. But I also, I really enjoy giving it to someone as a gift and then connecting with them after and seeing how they took it for sure. That's outstanding. Uh, I love the Duck book. And uh, my first administrator, uh, uh, interviewer on this show, Dr. Randy Hetherington, had a massive poster above his desk saying everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. So that's <laughs> nice. That's a great one. Is there something that you do every day, or most days that helps you to be well and healthy? Uh, probably two things. One would be uh, being with my kids and my wife uh, that provides the balance and it's like everything kind of just falls away, right? All that stuff you bring home on your shoulders just goes away pretty quickly when you're with them. And I'm a basketball coach. I coach uh, about six months of the year. And so having a different arena to play in and challenge yourself, I think is healthy. And so that's definitely been beneficial to me. Do you have any shout outs for, uh, for any university programs? Well, I coach at McEwen university. <laughs> I'm an assistant coach at McEwen university. Yeah. And so that would be my only shout out. Go Griffins. I guess. Go yeah. Griffins. That's right. <laughs> Travis, anything that you do every day or most days that keeps you healthy? Well, uh, it's, it's not a, not a very bit different answer from Jesse here. It's, uh, I'd say it's my, uh, family it's uh sports and it's my faith and uh so i love to odr with my kids a little outdoor rinking i coach them in hockey coach baseball still play hockey those kinds of things so i find it interesting that both of you mentioned physical activities and i wondered you know is there something that you find and you both mentioned that you coached some would see that as a total natural extension of your teaching profession. And some other people see it as completely separate, you know, you're coaching sports, you know, curriculum. Where do you stand on that? Do you, do you feel like it, do you feel like it's the same? Do you feel like it's different? Do you feel like it's different because of the context? I just find it interesting that the many teachers I know are also coaches, but they don't necessarily link the two. Uh, for me, a lot of what I learn in my career is definitely applied in the setting as a coach. Uh, but the context is very different. Um, you know, it's for sure, uh, much more of a narrow focus. Um, and the kids that are coming are typically choosing to come there and it's cool to, uh, you know, around a physical activity around the sport, be able to work together as a team, and uh, see the kids develop throughout the course of the year. So for me, there's a lot of similarities. I, I, I apply a lot of what I have learned in my career there, but uh, it also it doesn't feel like work to me for sure. Yeah. Now, Jesse, I, I find it really interesting because you coach, but you also don't coach your kids, which which a lot of people, that's their experience, right? They, they Their kids start to enter organized sports, and so that they, they, they are their children's coach. But you're a professional coach. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm even interested, more interested, not more interested, but I'm interested in your answer and how it might differ. Well, coaching was a, in the beginning part of the teaching. And so I coached high school basketball and junior high basketball. It evolved into college and university eventually. But you said, Travis, you said how you take a lot of your teaching, your coaching. And I know you do the same. I take a lot from the coaching back to the teaching. Um, 
And I think you can apply this. We, we sometimes just pigeonhole sports, but if you think like about the kid who's putting in 90 minutes of French horn every morning or the kid who's going in on weekends and evenings to practice their play or the kid who gets a hundred, 200, 500 shots up in the gym, these kids are putting in time in this world, this busy world where they have so many distractions. Why? Because they absolutely fundamentally care about what they're doing. And so isn't that what we're aspiring to? Like they are learning about something that they care so passionately about. They're willing to give up so much of their time. And and we challenge our athletes in ways that if you ever tried to do that in a setting where they didn't care, they'd walk out. And so it's kind of that shining star that we should aspire to in both arenas, you know, that we're trying to get people to care so much and give so much that they can test their resilience and test their growth and, and become better people. And I think I've been lucky enough to coach for a long time and I've had, you know, players who've played for me and gone on to careers and get married. And I just see the men and women that they've become and sports is part of it. And I, I don't think we should shortchange that, but I would say the same for drama and arts and, and music, all of that stuff. It can really be a big part of who we are. Last quick hitter. Is there an organization or a person who's inspiring you particularly right now? Um, my answer isn't uh, limited to one thing. I think, uh, I think actually, you know, like uh, I love my job and uh, it's challenging and there's some days that are better than others. Uh, at the end of the day, it's the people that I work with and, some of the relationships that I've developed over the last few years that become my source of inspiration. I mean, I, I, you know, you watch a Ted talk and you're like, can be inspired by somebody and you, you know, you read a book, you can be inspired by somebody. And I think that's for a moment, but, uh, the people that you work with and the colleagues that you work with that can sort of pick you up and sort of, remind you not to get muddied down by the daily circumstances that seem to be surrounding you and, and uh, look at that big picture vision of why you're doing what you're doing and what you're striving towards. Um, that's for sure, uh, where I get a lot of my inspiration from for sure. Yeah. Okay. I would say I'm working at Alberta education right now. And so I'm not out in parkland, but, uh, Travis and myself and Carolyn Cameron and, and others, we worked really closely together over the years. And I found, you know, even this last year that I was at Alberta education, Travis and I still found time to like get together and, and hash things out and talk about different challenges. And so, and I just recently had a conversation. We, we got together to talk about some education related topics for a good few hours. And uh, I think I'm, I'm really lucky to have really, brilliant people that I've worked with and like Travis and like Carolyn, who you've had on your podcast. And so, yeah, those are probably the people that I always turn to when I'm feeling challenged that they get me back on track and get me inspired again. So that'd be mine. What's next for you? Let's start with you, Jesse. Uh, what are some of the questions or problems that you're working on? Um, maybe some of the projects at, uh, at Alberta education that you're that you're working on or are things that just generally in your life that's really inspiring you you're hoping to maybe produce something well I I'll be at Alberta education for another year uh, and then I'll be heading back into the field and in whatever capacity and who knows um, and so looking forward to that I'm you know I'm pretty excited about uh, being back in in classrooms and schools doing doing work working with teachers whatever that is I think that 
my work at Alberta education is in the research branch and I, I love all the stuff that comes from educational research and, you know, reading all these ideas that are, are really pushing us. But yeah, I think the getting back into the classroom and, and taking all that I've had to, you know, learn at Alberta ed and, and through different conversations and get back in and, and try those things. So probably just that I'm just really looking forward to that challenge again. I want to stop for a second and, and maybe talk about that idea because there are some people that the question the value of secondments, the question the value of you know loaning a teacher out to get further training, whether that be through um, an, a government organization and, and maybe having service there, um, or even some other uh, school divisions that might have uh, a program set up where you can go for a year and, and actually go to university and then come back. The, uh, the whole idea being you go away, you learn, you come back and then you um, provide that service back. Do you have a different perspective now, having been gone through this idea of secondment, that that, that would be a good or perhaps not a good thing? Do you have a comment on the value of secondments or a year of ways to, to learn? When I was my first admin position, I, I completed the year and at the end of the year, I was offered a head coaching job. And when I sat down to weigh the options about the head coaching job, we had an assistant superintendent at the time, Kelly Wilkins, who, when I told her that I wanted to leave administration to take this coaching job and I'd go back to the classroom in like a part-time capacity, she said, it's great. It's exciting. It's a challenge for you. And you're going to come back with so much more to offer. And I think that that is the, the succumbent idea in that if we have different people from our organization that have been at Alberta education and see how things work and see that lens and then bring it back. It can only help our conversations divisionally mm -hmm. uh, as we, you know, look at what we're doing and the decisions we're making. And so I think a healthy number of people from your organization going into a succumbent and, and getting that perspective helps just helps that conversation. So I would say, yeah, it, it's beneficial. I definitely have had my eyes open to so many different things about how government works and about how the education system works from that end that, I'll always know that and I'll always be able to bring that into the into the classroom, into the conversations when I'm back in a school division, for sure. Travis, uh, let, let's start with you, um, or let's go on to you. What's next for you? What are some of the projects that you're working on currently or, or some of the projects that you're looking at, at tackling next? Um, we've got a few new things going on in our, in our school here. Probably one of the biggest ones that has uh, been, uh, you know, fascinating for me to engage in is we're really looking at how we uh, can personalize high school. So we started up a new program, uh, still Alberta curriculum, still, you know, not a lot of different from the other high schools in that end, but the way in which we deliver it is very much through a hands-on inquiry based approach, uh, where we're trying to get the kids engaged and are empowered in authentic learning opportunities and having them take ownership over their own learning, taking sort of a cross disciplinary approach, um, uh, and just helping them, uh, personalize the learning. So some of those big ideas that we were talking about at the beginning of this interview, uh, we're just exploring how we can bring that to life, uh, in a small setting. And so this is year one of that and, uh, look forward to what we're going to learn throughout this process and continuing to move forward with this for sure. That sounds good. Last question. Let's see if people want to follow your work. Want to uh, follow up? Uh, how how might be the best way to connect with you? Uh, probably the easiest way is Twitter for me. Um, I mean, obviously, you can 
be emailed and all that kind of stuff too. But Twitter at TravDMC is probably the easiest way. TravDMC. And then uh, Jesse, what's the best way to connect with you? Twitter would be the yeah, same yeah. for me. And so uh, jmcclain 77 is where I'm at. Yeah. All right. I want to thank you guys both for uh, agreeing to speak with me, even Thanks even full of tryptophan and turkey and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. That was my conversation with Jesse McLean and Travis McNaughton. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi or Blackfoot, Métis, and Nakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and to respect this land.